Mr. President, how many staff are sick? How many of your staff are sick? Thank you very much. Do you think you might be a super spreader, Mr. President? Do you think you might be a super spreader, Mr. President? That was our Yahoo News colleague, Hunter Walker, shouting questions to President Trump as he left Walter Reed Military Hospital late Monday, questions that few others would dare to ask. Trump's exit and return to the White House did little to alleviate concerns that he was risking the health and safety of Secret Service agents, White House aides, and others by his insistence on returning to work and, as he tweeted later in the day, vowing to resume campaigning sometime soon. We'll talk to Walker about his coverage of the president during the COVID crisis. And we'll talk to former Deputy Trump campaign manager Rick Gates about some surprising comments Trump made back in 2016 about a man who will be much in the spotlight this week, Mike Pence, on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their presidents are crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. Trump's uh, return to the White House, presumably to work, with a whole host of questions about just what happened, how he came to test positive, who gave it to him, how he was treated, how serious his conditions were, and I think most of all, how seriously he is now going to take the COVID crisis. Hunter, you are doing pool duty today, as I understand. Tell us how this unfolded, how you watched uh, President Trump's departure from Walter Reed and return to the White House. Yeah, so I just got back from Walter Reed, where, you know, initially this morning, we were not sure what we were going to see today. Uh, the White House medical team has been doing briefings there in the afternoon. We sort of presumed we were going to get one of those, but for a couple hours this morning, uh, there was a garbage bag over the podium and there was nothing but the garbage bag. As we were there, the number of positive cases on the White House staff, and there's now over a dozen cases in the president's circle, mounted. We saw uh, Kaylee McEnany, the press secretary, announced that she tested positive. Amid all this, the president's medical team came out, and right before they did so, he tweeted that he was going to leave Walter Reed and be discharged you know, back to the White House. When he did this, he said, quote, don't be afraid of COVID, and encouraged people not to let it rule their lives. The White House medical team then came out, and we sort of asked them who had authorized this discharge, how and why, in light of the fact that it is totally clearly out of line with every other set of guidelines we've heard, which is that, you know, people infected with COVID can be in for a really long battle 
and really should be isolated until they've had two negative test results um, and also isolated for at least 14 days. This is a highly contagious disease. They didn't really have answers for that. They also didn't have answers for a lot of the specific things we asked them about the president's condition, including what did they see on his chest x-rays and CT scans? Does he have COVID pneumonia? When was his last negative test and what was his viral load? What was really interesting is when they had positive things to cite, they were very specific. When we asked them some of these questions that they apparently didn't want to answer, Dr. Sean Conley, the physician to the president, cited HIPAA, the privacy regulations. But it was really interesting how he selectively applied those. Hunter, let, let me, I'm sorry, sorry to yeah. cut you off here, but I, but I want to – you often do pool duty where reporters get a chance to shout out a question at the president – often ignored, but with this president, not always ignored. And, you know, you're known for sometimes asking provocative questions, but this is kind of an art form, right? I mean, you are asking questions that actually have some real meaning behind it, but you ask it in a way that, you know, very sort of pithy questions. And so a lot of reporters ask that question about when he had gotten his last negative result, uh, which I want to get into in a second. But first, Let's talk about that question you asked him. Are you a, you you think you're a super spreader? It kind of went viral on Twitter, but you had a reason for asking that question. Why did you ask him whether he was a, he thinks he's a super spreader? Well, my philosophy for talking to the president or really anyone in politics is to really try to ask the most direct and simplest question I possibly can. And I think after what we've seen in the past week or so here in DC, This was really the key question. Is the president endangering his own staff and all of the people around him? Because as we've seen these, you know, dozen cases in his orbit, they're coming on the heels of a series of events that the president and his allies held around the country. I mean, just uh, less than two weeks ago, I was with him in Pittsburgh. It's one of many rallies he had totally unmasked on his part, largely unmasked in his audience, his staff taking the plane together, mingling with the crowds at these events. Many of these events were in clear violation of local regulations. Then going into last week, he he traveled to the debate. He had other rallies. But also there was sort of this constellation of, of things that happened in D.C. There were debate watch parties at the Trump Hotel. There was a big fundraiser. Uh, Matt and Mercy Schlapp had this party at their house the night of the debate. And then this all culminated in the one that most people have identified, which was the Rose Garden event, where the president unveiled his Supreme Court justice nominee, Amy Coney Barrett. And between these things, his debate prep, his debate war room, we've just seen so many positive cases. In fact, I believe it is the largest uh, single number of cases, that Rose Garden event, that we've seen here in Washington, D.C. So his own staff is getting sick. He is sick. And throughout the day, I asked the White House how many staffers are sick. They, they refused to give a number. Right before asking the president if he considers himself a super spreader, I asked him how many of his staffers are sick. And these are the people who most directly are supporting him, and he's in charge of protecting them. And of course, um, and, and of course he sets the tone in that White House. So people below him also don't wear masks and don't take the kind of protective measures that really, you know, the CDC and everyone else advises that you do. And, you know, one example of this is the White House press secretary today on Monday announced that she was, uh, Kaylee McEnany announced that she uh, had tested positive for COVID. I just saw earlier today that Paula Reed, the CBS White House correspondent, 
uh, tweeted out a picture of herself in the White House briefing room, you know, just uh, a few feet away from both Kaylee McEnany and another White House staffer, both of whom have now tested positive for COVID-19, neither of whom were wearing masks. So it really does have have consequences. And I wanted to ask you, uh, because the, the question that you asked earlier of the medical team, which I think a lot of people who were watching it might have not understood the importance of, of that question, but you asked, and other reporters did as well, the doctors, Sean Connolly, when did the president get his last negative result when he was tested? And Connolly would not answer that question. So, Hunter, why did you ask Dr. Connolly that question? Well, knowing the president's last negative test is really crucial to establishing the timeline of, of when he was infected and when, more importantly, he was infective. And this gets to something that we were touching on earlier, which is this constellation of events that the White House has had. And there seems to be at this point clear indication, even without knowing the specifics of his last negative test, that they traveled to some of these events knowing that there was COVID in the president's orbit. And what I mean is that sort of the canary in the coal mine here, as far as we know right now, was the president's close aide, Hope Hicks, uh, exhibiting symptoms on Wednesday as they were flying back from a rally. She supposedly then tested positive on Wednesday. This didn't stop the White House on Thursday from having a series of events in New Jersey, getting the staff all together, including Kaylee and the president, on the plane and traveling to New Jersey where he mingled with a bunch of his own supporters. So we're trying to figure out the timeline here to figure out the extent of you know, when and how the White House put the president, his staff, and his own supporters at risk. Excellent questions all. But I got to say, on, on the sort of most fundamental ones about the president's health itself and, you know, just how sick he was and just how much we can trust that he's on the road to recovery, you know, given everything we know about the White House and its lack of transparency and willingness to distort reality. And given, you know, the appalling performance of Dr. Conley at that press conference over the weekend, where he wouldn't, you know, answer questions about whether the president had been given oxygen and kept saying he is not now being given oxygen. I mean, it just raises like how much can we trust anything we are being told about what the president's condition is right now? I mean, that's a great question, Mike. And I think, you know, first off, I would just put down the caveat that based on what they are saying, what they have admitted and what they've essentially been caught in, because let's understand that prior to Jennifer Jacobs at Bloomberg breaking the story about Hope Hicks, the White House released none of this information, again, as the team kept traveling. So it's really unclear if she hadn't published that report, whether we would have found out about any of this at all. Jennifer Jacobs may have saved lives. Yeah, literally, because this stuff puts lives at risk. And, you know, it's, you know, I see the president's reporters, uh, supporters get angry when we ask him tough questions like this. But what I would have to ask them is, you know, don't you want your president to be safe? Don't you want his team to be safe? It's, it's really stunning. But, but back to your question, Mike, we've just seen this pattern of, as I was outlining earlier, providing very little information at all, and also just 
providing information that clearly wasn't correct. I mean, uh, Conley over the weekend sort of implied that the president's condition was great, which, by the way, with what we know about COVID, we couldn't possibly know for sure how good he was doing now. These things can take a sharp turn for the worse a few days in, but he implied the president was great. And then Mark Meadows, the chief of staff, walked over to reporters and said, you know, not such great condition. The next 48 hours are critical, right? So we've seen the White House contradict itself literally within a span of minutes here. And it's really hard to understand the quality of information we're getting. And of course, Connolly has said today at his briefing that the president is not out of the woods yet. And there is that sort of seven to 10 day window that they watch very carefully because he could still take uh, a dramatic uh, downturn. We hope he doesn't, but that is still uh, possibly in the cards. You know, the question for a lot of people has been that having gone through this experience, which must have been scary, you know, when you're hospitalized, you put on oxygen, you know that 210,000 people have died. Would it change Trump's attitude in any way toward the virus. Now, the one thing I think, I think he has not called it the China virus. Oh, oh, Dan, I'm sorry, I got to correct you. Oh, he has? He He sent out a tweet. He sent out a tweet uh, this afternoon where he, um, and it's really an incredible tweet, if you'll just indulge me pulling this up, because, and I I hate to cut you off, but but not only did he say this, but but it, it will answer your question about whether we can expect him to have a more sober attitude. He was quoting a New York Post column from the conservative New York tabloid, and he said, quote, you see it in enthusiasm for the president outside Walter Reed Hospital. You see it in registrations from Florida to Pennsylvania and West Virginia. If the president bounces back onto the campaign trail, he will be an invincible hero who not only survived every dirty trick the Democrats threw at him, but the Chinese virus as well. He will show America we no longer have to be afraid. And then in the initial version of that, he bizarrely tweeted out the columnist's personal email address, but that's a a totally different story. Um, (laughs) But he's still calling it the Chinese virus. He's still dismissing it. And he's indicating that he's going to travel very soon while he's likely still contagious. So he said, don't be afraid of COVID. Don't let it dominate your life. Easy to say for him who's got the best medical care uh, in the world, but harder to say for the 210,000 people who died and their families. And then uh, when he arrived at the White House, um, he kind of very ostentatiously stood there for a photo op in which he unmasked himself to show uh, presumably how tough he is. So um, it does beg the question, down in the polls, anywhere from 18, 8 to 14 points, you know, is there going to be any pivot at all? Or is he going to double down on the way he's uh, talked about uh, COVID and the way he's dealt with it? Pence is going campaigning. He's not quarantining, even though he's been exposed uh, to the president. I mean, so what do you think is going to happen going forward? I mean, with tweets like that, you know, and the indications from him that he wants to get out campaigning, the fact that Pence is already campaigning, the fact blatantly exposed members of his team are still working without masks at the White House and his headquarters. I think we have the answer to the question of whether or not he'll sort of turn the page and and, and have a more serious scientific response to this. But more importantly, Dan, I think you're bringing up two really key points here. One is that the politics and his 
a decreasing position in the polls seem to be dictating his response rather than the science and the risks. The other is that 210,000 people are dead here. And I want to be really clear, when I ask the president about his own super spreading behavior, when I ask him how many of his staff are sick, this isn't just about him. This is about all of the Secret Service, all of the residential staff, all of the political staff who work in the White House and run our government. The, the press, myself, I consider myself exposed due to the White House's behavior. And then, you know, the White House doesn't exist in a vacuum. This is the city of Washington, D.C. And, you know, the people in this area are put at risk when we see this big of a cluster of cases. And it's not even just D.C. because the president has traveled to Pennsylvania, to Minnesota, to New Jersey. He's literally putting people at risk for this virus personally and directly all around the country. And by the way, the New York Times, just one last point, Isakoff, and then I'll let you jump in. The New York Times is reporting that the White House is not really doing any contact tracing. You know, uh, And, and they, they, the, the way the New York Times reported that is because their reporter... Michael Shearmoth is one of the people who tested positive. He was not contacted by the White House in any way. I can tell you that, you know, I was on Air Force One with a bunch of the positive people less than two weeks ago, and that group is not considered exposed by the White House. Not everyone on that plane. They're only counting it as a week, and that's the only people that they're testing. And this echoes my own experience. I was diagnosed in March, and I let the White House know hey guys, I was in a briefing, I've been diagnosed. There was no follow-up. Only the White House Correspondents Association followed up with me and my colleagues about that. Hunter, very quickly, uh, I understand after asking your question, you know, <laughs> are, are you a super spreader, Mr. President, that's gone viral uh, uh, on Twitter. And I am told you got some pretty strong reactions from some of the president's supporters. You want to tell us about that? Yeah, I've gotten some very ugly messages. And what's more alarming about it is that these messages were encouraged by the Trump campaign. An official campaign account um, called me a disgrace and shared the question sort of, already, you know, and there was already um, a bunch of bile being directed my way and they just, they just heated it up. You know, again, what I would say to these people is I'm the one asking questions about how your president this White House that you support is being protected and taken care of. You know, I had a, a woman at the Trump campaign in the headquarters kind of send a snarky message to me. And all I would, could think was like, you're working in an office with Jason Miller, a senior advisor who was in that war room where so many people got sick and he's not isolating at home. And you're mad at me, not him. It, it, it right. boggles the mind. Right. Well, um, there's a lot that's boggling the mind these days. Um, so to put it mildly, hey, listen, the news cycle goes so rapidly. A lot of attention is going to be in just, you know, less than 48 hours on the vice presidential candidates. They're having a debate on Wednesday night. And our guest on this episode is Rick Gates, the former deputy campaign manager for Trump in 2016, who's got some really interesting things to say about what Trump had to say back then about Mike Pence. So, Hunter, thanks for being with us, and let's get to the rest of the show. We now have with us Rick Gates, former deputy campaign manager to Donald Trump and the author of the new book, Wicked Game. Rick, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. 
So quite interesting um, book you've got out there. I guess uh, what struck me and I think a lot of people is you've been through a lot. Over the last few years, you became a target of Robert Mueller's investigation. You were indicted, then you pled guilty, and you cooperated. And, um, you know, this was um, quite an ordeal for you and your family to be wrapped up in all this. And yet, you are still if I read the book correctly, a loyalist to Donald Trump and believe he deserves re-election. Explain why, having gone through everything you've gone through, you're still sticking by the president. Absolutely. And I appreciate the question. As you guys may know, for more than two years, I was under a court-imposed gag order. And one of the most frustrating things that occurred during that time was sitting back and watching various narratives develop without me having any ability to correct the record, defend the record, or just talk about anything that was happening. So I got to watch my life be defined by other people uh, without being able to do anything about it. So one of the things I thought that I wanted to do initially was to obviously correct the record, but as I dug into it a lot more, And given the positions that I had with the campaign and then the inauguration, and then obviously being a a target of the Mueller probe, I thought it would be a great opportunity for me as a student of politics. You know, one of the things that the American people don't get to see is things behind the scene. And I thought there were a number of just awesome events, unique events, crazy events, that it was important for the American people to know. So I I approached the book by being a a witness or an observer. And I don't speculate or get into a lot of rhetoric that, you know, other, I know other authors do. My point was to share with people the information that I saw and then let them come to their own decisions and conclusions. And, you know, within that context, I think you will see in the book why it's pretty clear that I still do support the president. And I believe he's still the best person to run this country. Having been through the Mueller investigation, and clearly a lot of pretty damning material came out during the course of that. And, uh, you know, from the Trump Tower meeting to the events involving Paul Manafort and you and the um, dealings with Konstantin Kalimnik, who the Senate Intelligence Committee did conclude was a uh, Russian intelligence officer. I know you have a lot of criticisms of the Mueller probe and the way it was conducted. But do you understand why there were so many people on both sides of the political aisle who really had questions, legitimate questions, about the Trump campaign, the role of the Russians in 2016, the seeming willingness of the Trump campaign to accept the Russians' help, and, you know, why that led to the investigation of by Mueller that ultimately ensnared you. Yeah, there, that's a lot to unpack. And what I would start off with is, you know, let's look, you know, through history of presidential races. There's probably not been a race where somebody has had questions about one or both of the candidates. And particularly in 2016, you know, one of the main talking points of the Trump campaign was obviously Hillary's email scandal. And uh, I think we all know where that investigation went, not far enough. And I think what we're going to see is maybe another look at that at some point in the near term. But I think if you take the questions 
And ask the questions, that's fair game, that's one thing. When you start looking at what happened over the course of the last three years, and I think this is a very important point for people to understand, because what, what was in the public domain in uh, May of 2020, excuse me, 2017 is much different than what's in the domain today. And we can break down each of those pieces, specifically with the Mueller probe, from a timeline perspective, in August of 2017, the FBI had concluded that there was no collusion between the Trump campaign or the Russian government. Okay, that's August 2017. Despite- you know, can I can I stop you there, uh, Rick? Because I got to say, I, I followed this closely, obviously, and wrote my own book about this uh, matter a couple of years ago. I wasn't sure what you're referring to when you say the FBI reached that conclusion. The FBI was still working with Mueller's team, which was conducting an active investigation into all the matters that it was assigned to investigate. So I'm not sure what document or specific conclusion you're referring to there. So what we were informed is that in August of 2017, there was an internal report within the FBI that had concluded the investigation from that standpoint. You're absolutely right. That does not account for the FBI agents assigned to Mueller's team, which is a completely separate piece that obviously was included in the Mueller report in 2019. But there was, remember, the FBI started this investigation well before May of 2017 when Mueller was appointed. Mm-hmm. And so they had a lot more time to go through the material, uh, interview witnesses, and which is, is exactly where I'm going in terms of why then did we need to start what seemed like a completely separate investigation where the evidence in the previous one had already been collected and it was well known that there was no collusion between the Trump campaign and any asset or you know, foreign government. And then to see this entire separate matter that, you know, Bob Mueller that was appointed to, to take on. And remember in 2017, in the initial indictments, was there anything, anything in the indictments that alleged that Manafort or I had anything to do with Russia collusion? Absolutely zero. Well, I want to get to, we'll get to that in a a moment. Um, You're right that the charges against the two of you did not you know, go to coordination or conspiring with the Russians. Although there were, there's material in the report that, you know, obviously addressed some of that. But let's go how, let's take a step back into how you got into this in the first place. And it begins with your relationship with Paul Manafort. Tell us how that came about. Sure. In 2006, I was working for a technology company at the time. And Paul's partner, Rick Davis, was getting ready to uh, take a leave of absence to go work for John McCain's campaign. He was already working for them, but he was going to take a more formal role. Now, just for historical reason purposes, I had worked at Paul's lobbying firm in 1994 uh, when I first uh, graduated from college as an intern. But wow. I, I didn't know Paul at the time. And I had actually only met him once prior to 2006, believe it or did, not. Did you work with Roger Stone? No, actually, uh, the person that I came in under was Charlie Black. Okay. And, and, and the name of the firm was Black, Manafort, and Stone in its Stone original and- iteration. Yeah. And so most of the work early on, I never really crossed paths with Manafort. And it was actually Rick Davis that hired me in 2006 to come work for Davis Manafort Partners, not Paul. And when Rick took a leave of absence and I began filling some of the roles that he was working on, 
obviously they had just signed the party of regions in Ukraine about a year and a half earlier. And so I began to work with Paul on that account. And as Paul got more entrenched in the Ukraine efforts, I obviously uh, did as well. And so you, for many years, so what year, do you say 2006 this yeah. started? Yeah. yeah. So for you know, pretty much um, eight years until the Yanukovych uh, government falls, you're in and out of Kiev, serving as a political consultant, uh, working directly for Paul Manafort. And you also are dealing with somebody I mentioned before, uh, quite regularly, Konstantin Kalimnik. Yes. Tell us about him. Absolutely. The first time I met Constantine was in 2007. He had uh, been working for Paul a, a couple years prior. He was working at the International Republican Institute, which is a government, quasi-government agency that is supposed to support kind of free and fair elections, you know, across the world, particularly in, you know, obviously former Soviet republics. So I met Constantine, otherwise known as KK, and uh, I met him on the first campaign, parliamentary campaign that I worked for in, uh, with Paul in 2007. So I got to know him. He was on the ground full time. I was not, so I kind of hopped in and out of Kiev when I was either there with Paul or, you know, Paul would go sometimes on his own. As campaigns heightened up, then I would spend more time. So I got to know him over the ensuing years. And, you know, he, he's, he's a very quiet guy. He's, you know, kind of four foot 11, very much a, a, a guy that stands kind of in the back behind the scenes. But his language skills were phenomenal. And, and that is ultimately, I think, what was able to get him into not just, you know, the U.S. government, but, you know, particularly uh, other Western you know, countries that were working in Ukraine as well, he was able to really, you know, talk with them across the board, you know, and I saw that over the years. In fact, you know, KK, KK had better relationships at the U.S. Embassy than I did. So when you read the Senate Intelligence Committee report, which flatly said he was a Russian intelligence officer, did you do a double take and say, oh, my God, I may, I may have been working all these years with a guy who was essentially a spy for the Russian government? So you actually have to go back a little further. So it wasn't the Senate Intelligence re Report that actually identified him, but it was early on, actually, in the Mueller investigation when they started writing right. on, on Paul that classified the FBI had determined that he was an asset of the Russian government. Well, they said he had ties to the Russian government. The Senate Intelligence Committee went further in its report this year and, and just flatly called him an, an intelligence officer of the of the Russian government. Yes, exactly. And, and, and hopefully we'll get to go both pieces because I think they're important. And so at the time that I heard it early on in the investigation, yes, I was absolutely surprised. I mean, do any of us know who spies are? I mean, if you looked at, you know, your, your, your neighbor across the street, would he be a spy? So I was surprised that they would classify him as this. Obviously, given the position that I was in, I thought it was very, very politically motivated for obvious reasons. And I thought this was a way that they were going to use to tie Paul to any particular idea of Russia collusion. Now, to your point with the Senate report, we're yeah. going to get a step further. Here's what I'd like to say to that. Where's the proof? There's right. No proof whatsoever. But in the, interest, in, the, in the interest of this issue, what I learned through the Mueller investigation, because we were able to get discovery, is I got all those State Department cables 
that were being trafficked between the State Department and the U.S. Embassy in Kiev, which went into detail in a number of instances of KK being a high value asset, working with the United States government and supplying information to the United States government on a fairly regular basis. And it was over a period of time. It wasn't just, you know, a couple of weeks or a couple of months. That was more surprising to me than the idea that he might be a, a Russian asset. Yeah. Although, that, you know, I know that's been sort of portrayed as, you know, exculpatory to Kalimnik or could suggest is sort of a benign interpretation of what he was up to. On the other hand, it's also consistent with a very good Russian spy who manages to um, hoodwink not just you and Paul, but also uh, the U.S. State Department. So much information has already come out on this. And there is information, whether it's classified or categorized as another way, why isn't that out? I mean, it's not as if that information is any more secret than some of the grand jury information that's already been released. So if there's information that the FBI has, why won't it be released? And where is the proof? If you have proof, great. That's, you know, yeah. process I learned to get into facts and evidence, you know, focus on that because there's so much rhetoric out there and misinformation and disinformation. So if you have it, show it. Yeah. No, I listen, I uh, I agree. Uh, it would be great to, to see it, uh, you know, and um, I was a little surprised at how far Senate intelligence went. Went On the other hand, it was a bipartisan report that the Republican-led committee signed off on. So... Sure, but no, no, in all fairness, it, no sooner have they signed off than you see a dueling war between Senator Rubio and Senator Warren. <laughs> right, about what it all means. Right? What it all means. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Fair I, enough. Just jumping forward a little bit, I mean, Manafort and your work for uh, the Yanukovych government and the Party of Regions is what got you into trouble with the Mueller investigation, uh, millions of dollars paid through offshore accounts and efforts to lobby the U.S. government without registering under the Foreign Agents Registration Act, including setting up a um, this Belgium outfit that hired the lobbying firms without disclosing that that was basically a front that uh, Paul set up as a way to get around foreign registration requirements, correct? That was the, uh, yes, act. that was the charges uh, leveled by the special counsel's office. There were some separate discussions with the FARA unit um, actually at the Department of Justice, which was another interesting point as the investigation started there were uh, a lot of um, angry members within the Department of Justice over Paul actually registering, because if you recall, he registered with the Party of Regions as a client in 2017. And the reason that was important is because if you actually look over the last three years when this investigation started, Paul and, and uh, by extension, I were the only two that were actually charged and prosecuted with FARA. Everybody else involved in that little, you know, circle of consultants in Ukraine, all of them retroactively uh, filed and not a single one of them had any charges leveled against them for the exact same action. I was surprised that there were not further indictments uh, against Mercury Group and uh, the Podesta Group, which were hired. And I can only, you know, surmise that their defense is, hey, we were misled. And we were misled by Paul Manafort and, and Rick Gates. Well, I think you had evidence in Greg Craig's trial, which uh, completely contradicted that. And if you look at some of the original emails where the government of Ukraine was listed, you know, as the client, there were other circumstances along the way with particularly Mercury 
and one of the principals having some issue with representing the uh, foreign country of Ukraine and finding and looking at ways to potentially get around that. Um, and that's kind of, you know, in part what helped start that uh, whole effort. But at the same time, there's no question the NGO, the European Center for a Modern Ukraine, had been set up. And I, I don't think this is in the book, but I will tell you, it's interesting. That was not Paul's creation. That was actually another uh, member of the Ukrainian government who had basically created his own lobbying organizations, both in the US and the EU. And Paul was directed to work with the ECFMU. It's not something he, he actually created, just uh, for the record. Okay, let's go to the spring of 2016, and Paul gets uh, tapped to join the Trump campaign and brings you on board as his deputy. There's a lot of um, a lot of details in the book about your your work for the Trump campaign, but I just starting out, were you surprised? Yeah, as as I uh, put in the front of the book, you know, Paul had called me to do and begin a research project, but he didn't tell me who it was for. And uh, as I as I disclosed, you know, it, you know, just overall, my interest was kind of getting out of politics. So I was almost doing this kind of as a, a favor to Paul to help him out on kind of this, you know, last client, so to speak. And when he told me who it was, you know, I was, you know, kind of intrigued because, you know, this guy had already gotten out a, a good amount of messaging that wasn't necessarily consistent with what traditional politicians, you know, start, you know, communicating. And when you actually looked at where he was in the polls, I started working on this for Paul kind of in, I think, January. You know, he, he was doing better than he was when he first announced, which was like less than 1%. Right. Uh, but he immediately, and, and again, this is where I think, you know, people are going to be interested in the book is, is wh what I go into in terms of describing the political process and how somebody, anybody, in this case, it happened to be Donald Trump, but could try to go through and navigate and beat all of this like kind of political party establishment. And for me, it just became more and more intriguing the further we went on, not just from a political perspective, but obviously from a personality perspective as well. And it just turned into this fascinating experience, which is why I wanted to document it, because frankly, I don't know if we'll ever have a president like this again in our lifetime. Well, I think that's that's probably a, a fair conclusion. Um, one of the uh, delicious uh, details in the book is uh, the selection of Mike Pence as the vice presidential pick. And your book has already gotten a little attention because uh, you, I guess, relate a scene where Trump at one point suggests he wants to pick Ivanka as his vice presidential nominee. And I gather he had to be talked out of that. Yeah, I think, you know, that I wanted to use that antidote, not so much because I knew, you know, people might take it the wrong way. And it was not under serious consideration. But you've got to think what he was thinking about at that time. He's not a politician. Uh, he's a corporate CEO. He's run a business all of his life. He has a very, you know, specific hierarchical structure that he uses. And the most important assets to him are obviously family trust and loyalty. And so this was not uncommon where he would bring, you know, uh, some of the kids in for every meeting. And, and the more the campaign became serious, the more that they became involved and engaged. So I think from his perspective, and obviously he's talked about it in public before that he thinks Ivanka would make a great politician and, and one day maybe she will. But it wasn't necessarily, you know, the fact that it was like crazy, but it was this unconventional idea that here's a guy who's never run for office before, who do you trust the most? I mean, and we get deeper into it as he looks at the other candidates too, right? I mean, he, he is looking 
at these possibilities as people that he knows well or can relate to, not what a traditional political consultant would say, hey, we got to look at it from an electoral vote perspective. Yeah, but come on, Rankin, we're not a monarchy. This is not Saudi Arabia. We don't uh, select our uh, children as our successors. That's not the way the democratic process works. So it was even to throw it out there, even if it, uh, you know, even if it was never going to happen, does seem a little jarring to people. But, but see, um, here, here's where I come back to and, yeah. and Absolutely right. In a political world, that would never happen. But what is he thinking about? He's thinking about it from a business world where children are obviously groomed in multiple corporations to take over. And that's exactly what you see now. So from a political point of view, absolutely agree. But guess what? He's not a politician, is he? He's yeah, but but <laughs> there's the politics of it. And then there's also, you know, sort of, you know, the essence of what our country is, which is a democracy and not a monarchy. But let's let's move on, because what you and Paul Manafort were trying to do was to convince him to pick Mike Pence. And it wasn't an easy sell. As you write in the book, Trump calls Pence a loser. Correct. We early on, we had run a list of names by Mr. Trump then. And, you know, he didn't, it wasn't particularly taken with any of them. And as you know, by now, he kind of sums up people, you know, based on how they look on TV, how they sound, and their success rate. And unfortunately for, you know, Mr. Pence at that time, he was not polling well in Indiana. And Trump did not know Pence well at all. He knew him by name. But once he saw some of the articles about how at that moment Pence was doing from a poll perspective, it didn't give him any confidence. And the one thing you have to have, you know, with Donald Trump is confidence. And so it did take a pretty long time to build up to the idea that somebody like this could be selected by him. The context of he's a loser is he sees the poll numbers in Indiana showing that Pence is 10 points behind in his reelection for governor. Correct. And so therefore, based on that, he didn't think he had a chance to win the, the governor's race. And why he kind of, you know, used the word, you know, loser, which he's used it with many people, as we know. Yeah. Tell us what what Trump said, as reported in your book. Yeah, in terms of the, the actual polling data, once we got the data back and showed him kind of some of these individual names, people that might be considered for VP, Mike was down about 10 points in the Indiana poll at this time. And I think this was kind of um, mid-May, mid to end of May of 2016. And uh, once he saw those polls, he was not happy with the, the number and wanted to find somebody that, in his mind, was was a winner. Is that when Ivanka comes up after he sees the poll numbers for Pence? Well, Ivanka came up uh, pretty soon after, I think in June. It's just an idea. We were in the office, and he was kind of running names through. So it came up later. Yeah. I mean, uh, the, the quote from your book is, Trump says, why would I want a guy like that to be my VP? So, and also, it's worth remembering that, that Pence had endorsed Ted Cruz for president at that point. Not full-throated endorsement, but it was an endorsement for his rival. So how did you convince Trump to pick Pence? Yes, it was a, a very difficult point because once Pence endorsed Cruz, particularly this is right after the Excella primaries, the, the five big primaries in the Northeast, and Trump won all by a landslide, and Cruz went over to campaign in Indiana as his last stop. And then on May 3rd, when uh, Trump won Indiana, 
it was a very, very difficult sell moving forward. Trump did not want anything to really do with Pence at that moment. Part of the strategy that we used was to sell the, the endorsement itself as an extremely weak endorsement, which is why I, I go back and kind of include the quote, because it reminds me of, of, of kind of the, the language that you know, Mike Pence used at that time. But it took some time. I mean, again, if you understand you know, the, the persona of Trump, you understand what matters to him, what the characteristics are in a person. And he naturally gravitated uh, toward people like uh, Chris Christie or even Newt Gingrich, who were much more confidence, hard-spoken, had been through you know, grueling you know, campaigns in the past. And so it took a good, uh, probably uh, almost two months, maybe a little less, for us to finally get to the point where uh, Trump was willing to consider Pence as an actual uh, VP candidate. And what was your selling point? Uh, the selling point uh, in the end was Paul convincing Mr. Trump that he needed somebody different from him because all the choices up to that point were relatively friends of Trump or were familiar with him. And they displayed, you know, a certain a set of characteristics like uh, strength and, 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 you know, positivity and other things that he had already been familiar with. And so when we told him the role of a vice president and what they're really supposed to do, we told him that your, your vice president is typically your pit bull. You want them to be, you know, kind of the, the, the hatchet candidate where they can go out and uh, argue against your opponents where you look presidential. The situation we had with Donald Trump, of course, is he was that individual. And Paul really sold him on the idea of, Donald, why would you want somebody like you as your VP? You are the, the hatchet guy. You are the guy that's going to go out and do a great job at selling yourself. And Trump thought about that for a few minutes, and I think it, it resonated. It took, don't get me wrong, it took some other factors to get there, but it was the first point where Trump kind of realized that he needed to distinguish um, himself from you know, his VP candidate. And that was, that was an important um, objective you know, for Paul in the campaign. Interesting, as this has played out with um, Trump's uh, COVID test results, uh, you know, it's obviously put a lot of focus on Pence right now, but Pence has come off as sort of a uh, complete loyalist to the president, even to the point of, you know, b being mocked for uh, always putting on the rosiest scenario and rosiest explanation for uh, the president's conduct. Do you think that's helped Pence? And do you think it helps the Trump-Pence ticket? I think early on, there was no way any of us could have predicted how loyal, you know, Mike would be uh, in the end. I mean, this is something, you know, when you think about when we were selecting the VP versus the events that we had to go through toward the end of the campaign and how loyal he had been. And this was kind of one of the points that Paul had made, you know, much earlier on, you know, to Donald Trump was, you know, guys like Christian and Gingrich, they're just going to try to, you know, run their own presidencies inside your presidency. They think they're smarter than you. They think they've had more experience than you. So the thinking is, why would you want to kind of, you know, pick a VP that might in the end be, you know, much more competitive than you? And then also, again, we can't, you know, surmise what either, you know, Chris Christie or Newt Gingrich would have thought about some of these certain scenarios along the way. But, you know, the one key one, obviously, that we all know is, is kind of the release of the Billy Bush tape. 
And it's at least my opinion based on what I saw. I don't think, you know, necessarily uh, Chris Christie or Newt Gingrich would have been as loyal. I'm not saying they wouldn't have been loyal. I mean, again, there's no way to tell, so I don't want to speculate. But right. the, the reality is Mike Pence had an opportunity to, you know, uh, jump off the ticket and he didn't. And not only was he loyal in that situation, but as you say, I mean, he's been loyal across the board. And ultimately, I think that's, you know, good for Pence from the perspective that Trump has galvanized the Republican base like no other candidate, no other president before. And I think if, if, if you know, Mike Pence chooses to run as president, I think people are going to remember, you know, how loyal and supportive he was of President Trump. Well, I think a lot will depend on the results of the election. And of course, if Trump is trounced next month, I think it's, it's fair to say that's probably not going to make uh, a future Pence candidacy um, better. But let's go to two other, actually three other points I want to I want to address. So there's a lot of controversy about Manafort's role that is building. There are unflattering stories about all the money he was being paid for by uh, Ukraine over that. But before that, there is in early August, the Grand Havana Cigar Room meeting. Yeah. Uh, and this is the meeting where Konstantin Kalimnik uh, flies in from Moscow to meet with Manafort and you. You come late, but the, the two of you were there. And this is the meeting where Manafort gives polling data, internal campaign polling data to Kalimnik. Now, I know you had begun doing that before, but it continues. And then also Kalimnik presents this Ukrainian peace plan. So on the polling data, because you were you were Manafort's agent in providing this to Kalimnik, didn't it strike you as odd that you would be giving internal campaign polling data to a foreign national somebody who's not part of the campaign, even if you didn't know he was a Russian intelligence asset, sharing something with a foreign national who lives in Moscow, you know, I think would strike a lot of people as a huge red flag. Sure. And I'm, I'm glad you raised it because, again, you know, you know, my goal in a lot of what I do in the book is to make sure that all the facts are out there and let people, you know, decide, you know, in the end how they feel about it. But there are a couple of things here. So first of all, there was actually no polling data shared at the Havana meeting. It, it had been sent prior by me at the direction of Paul to Kalimnik. That information was a combination of public and private data, and it was mostly dated. There were discussions about some of the uh, key states in the 2016 race at the Havana meeting. But I know a lot of people said polling data was exchanged. In fact, the special counsel ran into a little roadblock during their case against Manafort when they kind of had uh, mistakenly put that, you know, paper documentation had been exchanged and that never really occurred. So I want to make sure that, you know, people understand when that data was exchanged. But to your greater point of, you know, at that time, did, did we, did we, were we concerned about it? And the answer is no. And that's because the information was given to Constantine as a way for Paul to build his kind of bona fides over with his uh, Ukrainian client. And he had finished a contract in October of 2014 that he had not been paid for. And he also was looking at potential 
opportunities down the road if Trump were to win. So the basis of him giving that information to Constantine was solely to show people in Ukraine that Paul was having a tremendous amount of success of getting Trump up to the nomination. And this goes back to, if you remember, it wasn't just data. If you remember early on in April when Paul was first you know, tapped for the position, he sent some uh, individual letters, which I know a number of people have reported. And they went to certain key members of the uh, Ukrainian party of regions, which was Paul's client at the time. So again, you know, I've worked with KK for almost 10 years at this point. Paul directs me to supply KK with some uh, top line numbers. And want to make sure everybody understands that because top line are simply the raw number at the top, Trump 50, Clinton 48. There's no detailed information being discussed in these polls. But the main purpose of that information was to help Paul from a business perspective. And look, even if one puts that in the least incriminating light in terms of the Russia investigation, it's still pretty astonishing. He's the campaign chairman at that point. His sole interest is supposed to be to elect his candidate, not to use his position with the campaign to earn big bucks down the road. I'm still a little bit baffled as to, you know, why you didn't say, like, Paul, what are we doing here? Why, why are we doing this? Because from, from my perspective, the information, again, uh, was dated. So it wasn't as if it was any secret information. I mean, as I said, part of it came from, you know, uh, real clear politics and their polls. But keep in mind, Paul's not the only one that's, that's done this. I mean, this is what campaign consultants do. Look at David Axelrod. Look at David Plouffe. They all made money off of uh, Obama getting elected. Look at, you know, so there, there's this idea, if you're going to criticize that component, it's across the board. How many other political consultants over time have shared you know, top line data with friends from foreign governments or foreign government individuals themselves, right? Let's go back and look at it as, an, as a holistic issue if we're gonna do it. Yeah, listen, I totally take your point that this is a bipartisan phenomenon in terms of working for foreign political parties. And, you know, every major Democratic consultant has done it as well as every Republican consultant. The, the, the specific point I'm making is while you're working for the campaign, sharing information with a foreign national. But look, it's just a week or two later that Paul is let go. He's fired from the campaign because there's more unflattering stories about all the money that he was making in Ukraine. And I think a lot of us assumed, you know, I was one of them, that since you were Manafort's guy, you would be gone too. But you're not. You stay with the campaign to some degree, and then you come back essentially as the guy running the Trump inauguration. Yes, that's correct. And I, you know, had to work hard to do that. I thought a lot of that was based on, you know, my work for the campaign and the efforts that I did, but there's no question it was hard. And, and I think I, you know, included in the book, you know, one of the moments of frustration for me was that story that came out in the New York Times about uh, Paul and the, you know, quote, cash payments he had taken which have now been completely debunked and showed that whole story was false. Still working on the New York Times to you know, uh, send an apology. I'm sure I'll wait for that for a number of years. But it was a, I mean, first of all, if you knew anything about it, I mean, later on in the trial, it became clear that that story was not true. But from my perspective, what Paul didn't do is he didn't go to Trump and fight that story himself. 
you know, this is a kind of a, in my opinion, a generational thing. When Paul got back into the Trump campaign, he had not been involved in a U.S. presidential race in, in quite some time. Uh, in fact, I think it goes back to Dole from a presidential perspective. And I think from that standpoint, the media obviously had changed tremendously. And it wasn't if you could just kind of ignore a story and it would go away. And I think the fact that Paul didn't fight this story, you know, did significant damage to his position and ultimately led, you know, to his ouster. But it was a, but it was, yeah, it's a hard time for me. And, and as you point out, everything didn't fit into place. I didn't retain the exact same role that I had for the entirety of the campaign. I was uh, shifted over to uh, the RNC, but then was able to come back. And I think by that time had, you know, worked with a number of people in the Trump campaign that, you know, I'd like to believe that they thought I had some uh, skills that I could offer, certainly in the context of uh, the inauguration. One incident uh, that has been reported, but it's not in the book, is that you reached out to an Israeli firm, PSYOP, and convened a meeting to discuss, to see if they can provide assistance for social media manipulation uh, on behalf of the Trump campaign in the summer of 2016. Why did you do that? And what did you have in mind? Certainly. It's, it's, uh, thanks for reminding me of that. That was a, a story, it seems, uh, you know, almost a decade ago. Right. You're, this is interesting. So PsyOps was a company that I was introduced to, obviously through Paul, but Paul uh, had gotten a contact from one of our other American uh, consultants that was working with us in Ukraine. And he wanted us to meet with the company because they were working, uh, this company was working for him. And this had nothing to do with the campaign at the very outset of it. So we were, I was tasked with going to meet with him in Washington. And, and this is just before, I think it was like maybe two or three days before we joined the Trump campaign. And it was to help facilitate business introductions for this company completely unrelated to the U.S., but the business introductions were supposed to be in Ukraine. As a result of that, the principal that I met with, I think George Bierbaum, had actually asked me after he went through his business side, working with the Trump campaign, because apparently he had been already uh, worked with the Ben Carson campaign. And uh, that had kind of come to an end. So I had no idea that they were even remotely involved with Carson. But the context of that meeting for me was simply to, to meet them and do business introductions on the Ukrainian side. So it had nothing to do with assistance for the Trump campaign? No, not at the time. And then he, but let me be clear, he did pitch the idea that some of their, they had two different kind of technology bases. The one that he was talking about in Ukraine was completely separate from the one that he was uh, talking to the Carson campaign about. And he did uh, absolutely discuss with me at that meeting the idea of kind of targeted polling and uh, data analytics, and that they had uh, various tools that could do that. I never introduced it to the Trump campaign because I didn't know him or the technology well enough. And we already had our own digital operation going at that point. And then it wasn't until later on that I read that he approached other people in the campaign that uh, I guess also got him some initial meetings. But my meeting stopped uh, with him. I never uh, introduced him or forwarded any of his business details to anybody on the Trump campaign. And did he end up doing any uh, providing any assistance to the Trump campaign? To my knowledge, he never did. Okay. Do you know Andy Kawaja? 
I do not think I know the name. Do you have any kind? You can help me. Yeah, no, he was the guy indicted for funneling illegal campaign contributions from a foreign government, the the UAE, uh, since been identified, and in particular, uh, Mohammed bin Zayed, the uh, crown prince, uh, to initially the Clinton campaign. And then to the Trump inauguration, which you worked on, and there was a million dollars that was funneled through his company, Allied Wallet, to the Trump inauguration. Ah, yeah. So I remember the company, Allied Wallet, because it was one. So we had to vet every donor that we did. And because the campaign obviously didn't have the capacity at that point, the RNC did that for us. And um, as I recall, uh, that specific donation was reviewed uh, by the RNC. Um, I did know that they had approved it, but what you're telling me is, is, is accurate. So, um, but that's, the, I mean, again, I didn't get into any of the details of the company or anything like that. Cause I mean, we had, you know, hundreds of people that we were vetting on a real time basis, but obviously like most things in, in this saga, um, hearing about it afterwards, I got to know uh, more about that specific endeavor. Yeah. And the reason I brought it up, not just because you were, you know, working with Tom Barrick on the inauguration, is that the liaison for all of these uh, contributions was uh, George Nader, um, who you were working with, along with Elliot Broidy. And on a number of matters, including on behalf of uh, the UAE uh, on their anti-gutter campaign, and then also it's been reported um, trying to get a Justice Department case against the Malaysian Sovereign Wealth Fund guy who was accused of embezzling, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, getting that dropped, and then also the extradition of the Chinese dissident Gui, who is, of course, Steve Bannon's good friend. Uh, So I guess I just wanted to raise those because, look, one of the central messages of the Trump campaign was drain the swamp. And this looks to a lot of people as the epitome of the swamp. People who worked on the campaign using their connections to try to get advantages for, you know, foreign nationals with the American government. How would you respond to that? Yeah, look, first of all, I think it's a great point to raise, and it's it's a great policy discussion, right? Because uh, let me say this first and foremost. I did work for Elliot, but I did not work for George Nader and had never met George Nader and had not known uh, George Nader was working with Elliot until the article was released. So none of my intersections or interactions ever, you know, crossed with Nader. You had nothing to do with Nader. I had nothing to do with Nader. Okay. Now on the on the swamp thing, I think that's a great, you know, uh, you know, point to raise because I think there are multiple presidents come out and say eventually they're going to drain the swamp. And I think what I have seen, you know, um, in in administrations across the board, is I do believe to um, uh, the extent that he's been able to, President Trump has been able to drain the swamp. It is much different than it has been in previous administrations. With that said, um, there are still a lot of political consultants, a lot of K Street lobbyists, and they are gonna do anything and everything they can. And if everybody were going directly to the president for the decision, the swamp would be cut out a lot quicker. But because there are government uh, you know, people that are, are higher, that are below, that have played this kind of Washington DC game for decades, there's absolutely, you know, instances where I, I agree with you that the you just, you know, sometimes the swamp 
you know, is, is, a, is a little too big and you can't get all of it at once. So do you regret the work you did for Brody? No, at the time, I thought some of the issues that he had, and, and look, I, I, I thought Elliot was uh, a very interesting character. He, you know, did some very interesting things for, you know, the Bush administration. And the specific projects that I was working for him on were advocacy, you know, the Commerce Department. And I, look, that, all those were, you know, right on target with what, with what he, you know, was doing and saying as part of the mission. And obviously he had worked himself up in Trump world too and within the RNC and got himself back on the finance committee. So I don't regret the work at all. I thought some of the policy issues were actually, you know, really interesting. The role in the, the anti-gutter efforts and sort of, which was something that the Saudis and the UAE was, were very interested in. And of course, this comes at the time during a period when the president's first trip overseas is to Saudi Arabia. The relationship with Mohammed bin Salman, uh, MBS, is uh, solidified during that period. And it does seem like there was a decided effort to basically cozy up to the Saudis that there's been a lot of blowback uh, in light of what happened subsequently, particularly with Jamal Khashoggi. We're on the second anniversary of his brutal murder. Yeah, I think from my standpoint, you know, I, I like to think I gave Elliot, you know, the best piece of advice when it came to, you know, any effort in the Middle East. And, and that's like, you got to look at what Jared Kushner is doing. I mean, that is his you know, kind of project. He uh, wanted to come in and, and really look at solving some of the problems in the Middle East. So, you know, honestly, even be you know, maybe beyond the, the president, what the president really wanted in the Middle East, I think Jared, you know, was the kind of the key, you know, actor to watch for in all that. So whatever actions he was supporting, you know, I said to Elliot, you, you got to watch that because that is really going to be your driving force. And I think the the frustrating thing for a lot of people on the outside, if you remember, that initial ban on Qatar was put in, but then the, you know, Emir came over, I think it was in May of 2018, and the Trump administration changed its position, you know, uh, with respect to Qatar. It was, it was a, I think, worthy of a policy debate on that because there were a lot of moving pieces in it. Did you have concerns about what Kushner was up to? Uh, no, not at all. I thought his, his absolute, you know, motivation and efforts were 100% right in terms of like, you know, negotiating with the Middle East. Now, I wasn't privy, you know, to a lot of the discussions that he had, you know, with a number of the Middle East leaders, but at least from, you know, kind of when we were working on the campaign and leading up in the transition inauguration, I was, you know, absolutely convinced that Jared was going to do something with the Middle East piece. I didn't know what it would be because of all the failures of past administrations. So I was quite curious to see what he was going to be able to do with it. That was different from obviously, you know, much more experienced and, and uh, you know, important people in that realm. And obviously the the proof will, will be in the history, and, and at least as of a month ago, it did better you know, than I thought it was going to do. One last quick beat on this. Uh, Brody has been widely reported to be still under investigation by the Justice Department. If charges are brought, do you expect to be a witness? I don't know. Uh, it's a great question. I have honestly not heard a lot about that case. And, you know, as, as, uh, as, as my lawyer frequently tells me, don't, you know, comment about any ongoing case. So, um, okay. is, is, you know, in the papers, you know, but, uh, but I don't know is, is the answer to that. I think it's fair to say you have a very good lawyer in uh, Tom Green, one of the true Washington veterans. Um, yeah, I've been a, uh, been a great friends. 
Yeah. All right. So uh, final uh, final question. Um, it's not looking very good for the president uh, at the moment. I'm speaking politically, uh, not medically. That's a totally separate issue. How does it look to you? And do you think there's any way he could come back from the large deficit he appears to be under right now in the polls? Yeah. First, let me say, I think, and I, I say this to my campaign staff, you know, in 2016, a day in politics and a political campaign is an eternity. Anything that can happen probably will happen. So you can't take any single day and think that, you know, we're going to win or we're going to lose. And I would tell you absolutely today that it is still too early to tell. And I said, if there's any lesson that was learned from 2016 and any of your listeners, don't watch the polls. The polls right now are an absolute waste of time. And I think if you look at the fundamentals of each candidate and what they do leading into the last 30 days, I think that, you know, President Trump is going to start, you know, building upon the economy. And there's going to be some, from what I've been told, some good economic data coming out from some uh, economists that had projected the GDP growth rate. I think if the president can seize on that, because as we know, historically, Outside of the, the presidential election in 2004, where national security kind of became the priority issue because of 9-11, every single election is hinged on the economy. If Trump can sell the economy and, and he can get voters convinced that when they go into that polling station, they don't want to change the direction of the economy, I think he's probably going to pull it out. Well, we will see. That would be uh, if the last election produced the biggest upset in, in American political history. Uh, if if you're right, uh, I think it will be it would be overtaken by a Trump victory this time. Okay. But anyway, uh, Rick Gates, I want to thank you for spending the time. The book is Wicked Game, and um, good luck with it. Thanks. I appreciate. It. I really enjoyed this. Take care. <laughs> 